0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. In this week's episode, I chat with Ilya from Near and Alex from Aurora. We talk a little bit about their histories, how they both got involved in the NIR ecosystem, and what the connection is between the Aurora project and NIR. We give an update on NIR since the last time Ilya and I spoke, as well as look at what's new in Aurora, looking at Aurora+, Plus, how it's evolved the Rainbow Bridge, as well as some future plans they have to make better use of NIR's sharded system. Before we kick off, I do want to highlight the ZK link tree for you. This is a great place to find out about all of our channels. So if you want to learn more about the podcast, get to know the community, potentially check out our jobs board, you can find all of the links there. You can also find a link to the ZK Hack Discord. ZK Hack is a new project focused primarily on ZK education. If you're looking to dive in as an engineer or researcher, I definitely recommend you check that out. I've added the link to the ZK link tree in the show notes. I hope to see you in one of our channels. Now I want to invite Tanya to share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by Anoma. Anoma is a set of protocols that enable self-sovereign coordination. Their unique architecture facilitates efficiently the simplest forms of economic coordination, such as two parties transferring an asset to each other, as well as more sophisticated ones like an asset agnostic bartering system involving multiple parties without direct coincidence of wants, or even more complex ones such as N-Party, collective commitments to solve multipolar traps, where an interaction can be performed with an adjustable zero-knowledge privacy. Anoma's first fractal instance, Namada, is planned for later in 2022, and it focuses on enabling shielded transfers for any assets with a few-second transaction latency and near zero fees. Visit anoma.net for more information. So thanks again, Anoma. Now, here is Anna's interview with Nir and Aurora. Today, I am here with Ilya from Nir and Alex from Aurora. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting us.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: So Aurora and Nir are somewhat distinct projects, but definitely part of the same ecosystem. And I wanted to use this episode to kind of explore what that connection is between these two projects Quick disclosure, the ZK Validator is a validator on NIR. So if you have NIR tokens, you can always delegate to us. And ZK Validator is also an investor in Aurora. Ilya, you've been on the show before. Alex, you've not been on the show before, but we did do an interview last summer. But it, I think it would be great if you could just quickly introduce yourselves to the audience.
2: Hey, yeah, i I'm, I'm co-founder of NIR Protocol. My, I would say, pre-blockchain experience been mostly in AI. And I was at Google Research led a team working on question answering, Google tr- trans- like Translate. And so if you translate stuff or ask questions on Google, some part of my work and my team's work is there. Obviously, it's a huge team effort there. And uh, yeah, left to start a near AI startup with Alex Skidanov, different Alex. And uh, we've uh, kind of went through an interesting journey of teaching machines to program uh, until realizing that uh, we need the payment network to pay the, the real people who are giving us data and uh, starting to explore blockchain as a platform to build uh, some of the pieces on that until realizing that to build that, we need you know simple, secure and scalable blockchain and we didn't find one, so decided to
1: build our own.
0: Cool, and that's the founding of NIR. Exactly. Alex, what about you?
1: Um that's uh, by the way idea that's a great uh, proof of concept project that is uh, lasting for what 5 years already. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah there's actually a near crowd on near that's running that has like I don't know 2 or 3000 active users daily that are actually collecting data for machine learning.
0: Nice.
1: So about myself uh, I'm Alex from Aurora uh, I'm a PhD also a technical guy PhD in applied physics and math uh, in my pre blockchain career. I was focusing on the massive parallel computations uh, using um, heterogeneous architectures, uh, so calculations on on, uh, graphics uh, cards. And then I figured out that uh, blockchain is working on the quite similar uh, questions, how to make sure that many different computers are actually executing something uh, as a single system. Um, So that's why I was transitioning into the blockchain um, around uh, 2015. So I'm already in the blockchain space for seven years. Uh, And um, from 2020, started to work with Nier.
0: Alex, it's the first time you're on the show. I kind of want to start actually understanding a little bit more like how do you know each other?
1: This story is pretty long. Once I was in the sixth form, and then I figured out that uh, just one year below me, uh, there is a guy named Ilya, and we started to intersect on different math limpets and different competitions. Okay. Uh, And so we knew each other from literally the middle school. Oh, cool. Um, In 2018, we figured out that we are both uh, working in the blockchain, Uh, By that moment in time, I was already in blockchain for like three years. Ilya only started his path with with his new project. Unfortunately, we didn't find back then the way how we can cooperate together. Yeah. But later when I finished my previous arrangement and became a free agent, Ilya said, okay, just uh, come on board and uh, make sure that the Ethereum part of Nier is in the good condition.
0: Got it. What were you doing, Alex? What were you actually doing before?
1: Um, I was working in the company named Bitfury. I was okay. one of the first hires there in the software department. I was focusing on the permissioned blockchains. And uh, I was building a project that is called Exonum. It was one of the first uh, projects in crypto who started to use Rust as a programming ah, language. Nice. And as far as I understand, some pieces of it are actually reused in in near Oh, cool. Oh well, yeah, we, we've used few libraries for sure. For example.
0: <laughs> okay, Ilya, do you want to tell your side of the story? I mean, it, yeah, it's
2: pretty much mi- mirroring this, right? It's <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know,
2: met around Olympiads in and in our computer class in school. Yeah. But yeah, kind of uh, kept in touch, and you know, through common friends, like realized uh, working working in blockchain as well. So I think when we were just starting, we did kind of uh, you know. A pretty wide search of who is doing what in the ecosystem. We we started doing whiteboard series, but also like we've definitely saw Exonum, and I realized you know, one of my upper classmate, upper schoolmates is from there. So I think we connected, uh, talked about Exonum and like what what are what are things happening there, and then yeah, um, kind of through 2019 and like to, toward the end, we realized. The needs of bridges, I think, like way way earlier. Well, to be clear, like we actually tried to build first bridge in 2018. Mm-hmm. So this was San Francisco hackathon. Wow. And RT was trying to build a teleport, we called it back
0: then. Nice. I was the host of that, actually. Was it ETH SF? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah, you were there. on the stage. Um, <laughs> cool
2: yeah so we we started building this actually anton uh, Boker from one inch started building the bridge uh, back in nineteen and then James Breswich started building the e v m like emulator e v m inside Mir, but we kinda did not have a owner for that yeah like, we just had these two like projects running with tech teams but not not somebody who could you know take it to like go to market and a product and, and, you know, also push kind of how to, how to make it for life. So this is where like, I, I was looking for somebody to take on this. And yeah, when I was talking with Alex, I was like, Hey, you know, it's a great match for somebody who was, you know, because their experience building teams, building kind of products as well as, you know, really technical understanding, how every, all of the pieces work. Cool. And so, uh, kind of Alex came in.
0: And Alex... Shevchenko, Alex, you joined after Near had already formed, like it was already an existing project, but you were brought on, I guess, to work on the bridges to start. Did you build Rainbow Bridge?
1: Well, I would say that all the fun part of uh, bridge and EVM was uh, already done <laughs> and uh, only uh, now somebody needed to, you know, clean up the mess, you know, ah. make sure that the technical debt is uh, is done, right? Uh, make sure that the audits uh, are done and all of this stuff uh, and just uh, just productize it.
2: Well, I think more importantly is actually getting users for all this, right? So,
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: like, actually, how, to, how do you go from we have this, you know, piece of code sitting on GitHub to this is actually, you know, one of the biggest projects in the ecosystem?
0: Yeah.
1: That was it. So I joined in September 2020. Mm -hmm. And then in four months, Ilya came to me and said, hey, super cool stuff. How about making you a CEO of of Bridge and EVM? And I said, whoa, (laughs) let us release these things first and then we can go, you know, all in the separating of, of the company.
0: Nice. Tell me a little bit about Aurora. When does that start in this? Like, is Aurora an extension then of Bridgework or was it a different project? Did it kind of have a different purpose? It,
1: it is a different project. It, it was always a different project. Uh, okay. uh, so Bridge is about uh, moving assets and uh, trying to interconnect the blockchains. Mm-hmm. While Aurora is uh, some kind of compatibility department um, of near Uh because Aurora allows launch the Ethereum applications directly on Near without changing the smart contract code. Yeah. So it were two teams that have been working in at Near uh, back then, separate teams, uh, and I was in both of them. Literally. Uh, yeah. In terms of the time for building Aurora, it was taken actually uh, the last iteration. We decided to rebuild everything from scratch with new learnings from the from the previous uh, proofs of concepts. And uh, we built it actually in a very short time frame. It was around four months for the development of Aurora and actually launch.
0: Cool. Last summer, we did this interview. Uh, there is a, a video for it. We're going to link it in the show notes. It's a really fun interview. We actually talked a little bit about the history of Aurora and where it was at. Would you say when you talk about rebuilding it did have you rebuilt it since that interview since last summer?
1: Uh no. Okay. The only thing that we did since last summer is is extending, adding new features, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that uh, the performance is high because since last summer we've gone from uh, pretty uh, pretty empty chain uh into pretty loaded chain. Nice. Uh, at the moment aurora is causing around 80% of the load on near um cool. and uh, and it is only one single shard so aurora cannot aurora is a single smart contract so it cannot run on multiple shards at the moment so uh, and because of this we were we were the first use case uh in the near ecosystem who started to hit the limit um uh, in terms of the performance um, and, and we kicked out a great uh, project for increasing the performance of, of both Nier and Aurora back in uh, winter. And I believe both teams were uh, moving towards this goal, making sure that there was enough room for everybody here.
0: Cool. I want to come back to Aurora and kind of what's happened since a little bit more But first, I want to talk to Ilya about what's new with NIR. And this, I'm going to throw back to an earlier episode. We spoke, I think, a year and a half ago or almost two years ago. At the time, NIR had just launched period. It was just one chart, like launched. But I want to check in with you about what's happened since just on Near. A, what kind of developments you've already seen, or if any of the narrative or vision has changed. Because back then, and from the interview before, your, your goal remained getting a billion users into Web3, making it incredibly easy for developers to deploy. So yeah, tell me a little bit about what's new in Near. And uh, yeah, if anything's updated or changed.
2: I mean, the vision is still the same: one billion users to start.
0: Uh, <laughs> now, now that we're making progress, you know, it
2: seems so maybe one billion will be a good start, and then we're going to continue working. Right? We kind of formalize our vision into this: like, you know, to achieve one billion users, like to achieve kind of mainstream adoption, you need a simple, a secure, and scalable infrastructure, mm-hmm. right? And so, simple really means. Like it's easy to use. And so Aurora Plus and, you know, Web wallets, all of those pieces kind of feed into this, but also the native account model and and other stuff. And it also needs to be simple to build, right? So, you know, if people want to build on Solidity, there should be VM. If people Mm -hmm. want to build, you know, an app chain, we have Octopus. If people want to, you know, interact with other chains, we have bridges. If people want to write in JavaScript, for example, we actually a few weeks ago launched kind of a preview of JavaScript smart contracts, So you can just write any javascript you want on chain and so kind of delivering whatever the experience people want and kind of with the best in class tools is the goal there with security you know obviously securing the blockchain securing the consensus as well as you know making sure like it doesn't break doesn't stop and then going into the users and developer flow like how do we help secure smart contracts how do we help secure user funds Kind of beyond the cryptography right and so there's a lot of things that you know the ecosystem is working toward to making that more usable and to be clear like security is actually a bottleneck for onboarding users as well hmm. and scalability is the final piece right if you have what i have billions of users you know millions of apps you probably need you know a lot of scalability under the hood and hmm. it needs to be simple and secure right so again this is this is an, in the order of priorities got it and so yeah i mean obviously continue continue trading and innovating on that side.
0: Near, I remember when we first talked about it, it was the sort of sharded, like constructed from the ground up with sharding in mind. And I remember, I mean, there was obviously at the time a lot of comparisons to the ETH model of sharding, which ended up changing pretty dramatically. Would you say Near has stuck to that initial vision for a sharded blockchain? And at what stage are you at this time?
2: Yeah, good question. We believe, I mean, sharding is the only way to scale simply and securely, right? Again, like there's ways to scale and add complexity to the user, which is by adding a lot of different chains and then user needs to think about them. It also adds, you know, security, pushes security to the user, right? Now you need to think, is that chain gonna blow up tomorrow? Like, is this bridge secure, et cetera? And so this is kind of, you know, sharding is the only way to do this simply and securely. And now within that, you know how to build that, and you know our design is pretty different actually from what was suggested by researchers in EF. Although they kind of kept and go in some of the similar ideas as well. But yeah, we end up you know building it, and we've been launching it step by step. And so uh, last November we have resharded our network to four shards. Uh, this had zero impact to the developer and user. So meaning as a user, you don't need to know that there is more shards. As a developer, you don't need to change your applications. Like, everything just kind of happened. And Aurora got its own shard uh, mm. during that process.
0: I want to actually understand that, what you just said. So it had its own shard, because I always understood sh- the shards of Nier as being very general purpose. But here you're saying, like, one application lives on one shard, or they have a shard. I don't even know what that means, actually. Are they, are they the full shard? Is it only Aurora on that shard? So so here is the difference of near kind of
2: i would say approach is that the each smart contract on near is actually its own shard virtually okay each contract is it's almost like it's on chain, but we package them physically to shards based on the demand and based on the layout that that currently network needs and so this is exactly the same as, you know, if you built like in web two, you like each record in a database actually can live on whatever shard, depending on uh, whatever database needs for, for its indexing and for the, for the load balancing. Hmm. And as a user and as a an up like higher level developer, you don't need to care about that, mm-hmm. right? Like MongoDB can be run, you know, like splitting records across bunch of replicas and you know, whatever, you don't need to think about it. And so this is the same idea. So because each app, Each each smart contract or a contract or account lives on its own virtual shard. They can be moved between physical shards at any point of time. And so, what happened with that resharding is that first of all, we split one shard into four, like into three different, and then Aurora contract specifically got its own physical shard.
0: Okay, so this is interesting. You just mentioned virtual shard and actual shard. So when you say each application has a shard, they have a virtual shard, but in the case yes. of Aurora, they got both, a virtual yes. and a real yeah, one. Yeah, their
2: virtual shard fills in the physical shard okay. because so has so much uh, kind of demand, right? And cool. so that's idea of our kind of future vision is that this pro- right now this process is governance, like technical governance, right? Manually, you know, making decision of how to define a layout of virtual shards to physical shard mapping. Yeah. But in the future, we want to have it dynamically, and so that's what we call dynamic resharding, where depending on the load in the network, uh, it actually will decide which kind of accounts should be allocated to which physical shards, and then if some contracts in Near ecosystem need a full shard of capacity, full chain of capacity, they actually get their own chain, and so this is how you know a lot of people are like, hey, we'll need a whole chain of capacity, and actually on Near you can get that. But you only need to pay for what you need, not for, you know, for the whole chain of capacity if you don't need that.
0: Does the near, like the sharded near, the physically sharded near, does it have a single VM? Anything that's deployed on it, I'm assuming, like on that base part, that is all going to be written in a single language, right?
2: So it's not single language, It's but it it compiles to WebAssembly. Okay. And so WebAssembly is this generic VM that you can compile, for example, EVM to, or JavaScript to. And you can compile, you know, Java, Rust, uh, C++, et cetera, too. And so what we in result having is actually the like ability to write in many languages already. Uh, I think there's already like three or four languages actually people have written on. Uh, plus we have this other VMs that are compiled to WebAssembly like EVM, like JavaScript, okay. that allow to evaluate any R- like code in that language as well.
0: So you're saying there's like, you can write directly with a number of different languages onto the baseline VM. What do you call that, by the way? Is it just the near VM?
2: Well, it's WebAssembly. Oh, it's it's WebAssembly. Okay, so you're writing... It's literally generic WebAssembly. Okay. Yeah, it's the same thing you're it like we're running in browser right now, probably... Like actually recording this podcast.
0: Okay. Okay. So, but then you can also, if you wanted to say deploy Solidity, you'd then be deploying Solidity onto an EVM, which would compile to WebAssembly. And what part did you have to build in that? Like, what was already there and what isn't there?
1: We actually needed to find um, an implementation of the EVM on one of the supported languages. Rust was fully okay. And then make sure that uh, this EVM is actually capable of running uh, and executing the smart contracts that are uploaded there. So uh, our candidate uh, for this EVM implementation was Sputnik VM, the uh, virtual machine that was uh, initially developed by Parity. But now Aurora team is one of the biggest maintainers uh, of Mm. this implementation. And uh, having the virtual machine, having the runtime there, we needed to implement only very small pieces that are on the boundary of this virtual machine and in between near runtime and and Aurora runtime. So things like um, ability to move assets from the near runtime to Aurora and back, uh, like bridging assets in between near and Aurora. Um, Additional things like uh, management uh, of the Aurora smart contract And then, uh, for example, gas metering and uh, an ability to pay to the relayers natively on on your blockchain. So these are pretty small things that we needed to do. obviously, we were following this path because uh, that is one of the simplest ways how you can build and maintain the EVM-compatible chain. Just take everything from the other chain, use it as a utility, and take care only about the the runtime. And because of this, we were able to do it quickly. Obviously, the drawback there is that we're having some kind of an additional complexity layer, right? Additional, yeah, additional step. Uh, but the actual reduction in, the, in performance is uh, not more than 30%.
0: I mean, this sounds a little bit like because we've had a number of conversations with zk teams that are doing like zk EVM in different ways. So sometimes it'll be like zk EVM, but based on EVM opcodes, and other times it'll be zk EVM that compiles down to whatever language is underneath. So it's it's actually underneath the hood very different. In your case, underneath the hood, it is different. Would you call a, what Aurora is doing is compiling EVM down into something else?
1: Into WebAssembly, yeah.
0: into WebAssembly, and that's the part that you're talking about—the so these particular cases that you had to write, you right. had to like code for. Does this introduce any sort of like security stuff? Is this like a fear?
1: Well, obviously, because I, I feel that Aurora is the team who is building the most complicated smart contracts in the world, uh, because literally we put an EVM, the whole EVM, in a single smart contract. On top of Near blockchain, this is yeah. a very very complicated smart contract. Uh, besides that, we also taken care of Rainbow Bridge that has a Near light client implemented as a Solidity smart contract, right? So, again, it's kind of complicated thing.
2: And Ethereum light client as well, which mm. is probably the most complicated light client in the world. And
0: that <laughs> yeah. does that Ethereum light client live on Aurora or does it live on
1: Ethereum? On it lives on Near.
0: Oh, it lives on near. Okay.
1: Yeah. Ethereum-like kind lives on near.
0: Okay. This is for the bridge, I guess.
1: Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so like we are building very, very complicated smart contracts. It's probably our specialty, <laughs> so, uh, and obviously we are pretty worried about this. That's why we have continuous audits. Uh, we have a very beefy uh, bug bounty program. Um, just recently, Rainbow Bridge paid out uh, a six million bug bounty, the second largest bug bounty in the world. Just because, well, there was a bug there, and uh, thanks to White Hacker, they found it and reported it. it uh, did a great job for the whole of the community, and uh, uh, with a very light heart, uh, we were able to pay quite a lot of uh, money to the hacker. But uh, we know that he, it is he who secured our users, so all is good.
0: When you talk about this deployment of the fully VM as a smart contract, is it not somewhat similar to some of the roll ups and maybe not all of them? But I remember like having Z Kapru on and this is really stuck with me where one sub told basically said like, well, what is a roll-up other than a collection of smart contracts anyways? But then I realized that other certain roll-ups have like full off-chain activity happening or forks of Geth, or something. But in your case, like, was it in any way inspired by roll-ups? Is it in any way connected to like roll-up construction? Taking a step back, right? There's
2: kind of this whole concept of
0: execution environments and
2: modularity, right? And so modularity this idea that you kind of decouple the consensus and the execution from each other and through that you achieve you know whatever either higher throughput and and or you know faster innovation and so in a way what near offers is a an environment wh- which allows you gives you a sharded you know consensus mm mm-hmm with a kind of a box in which you can put whatever environment you want and so what aurora is and and we have few other environments as well now they are the execution environment in that sense back i think uh whenever it was that like three years ago i, I remember vitalik and, and other folks were talking about it as well like hey we can just take evm and put it as smart contract like mm. as, as an environment on top of the sharded blockchain Now, this is kind of, in spirit, similar to rollups because rollups are using the Ethereum or whatever layer one as a consensus data availability layer, which, you know, that's what NIR is, and then running kind of the execution environment separately. Mm -hmm. The problem with rollups is that you don't have state available directly on your uh, kind of consensus layer, Mm -hmm. which means you have latency you, you, you by, by splitting these two things from each other, you, you're introducing latency and like with zero knowledge or optimistic, it doesn't matter. You always will introduce latency between kind of the execution and the finality. Mm-hmm. And if we go back to our philosophy, right, simple and secure users don't want to think about it, right? You send a transaction, you a confirmation, you want to know it's done, right? Not not figure out like, you know, is it going to settle for seven days? Or, you know, are we going to run fraud proofs? You know, is it we need data? availability sampling, like all that should be handled by the protocol. Mm-hmm. And so what Aurora is, it is a roll-up, but it's a realistic roll-up, right? It's actually final right away. And so every single transaction is going directly to Near, settles on Near right away and gets finality. And so you have the state directly available from the same validators you would get any other state of near.
0: Right now, my, my mind has now gone to like Polkadot with the relay chain and the parachains, and I'm trying to remember <laughs> what their relationship is in terms of execution. <laughs> so, like, is there any influence there? So we did this
2: uh, whiteboard series with everyone, right? Yeah. And so we definitely learned the data availability Module with polkadot. That was like I don't think we've realized we can use it in that way before that whiteboard. So yeah, I mean, I would say like polkadot, like it's it's definitely like in in a way, right? I mean, all we all all of us are kind of exploring what is the setup that works, right? Yeah. But we we approaching it from kind of this set of philosophies and focus on user and developer. Yeah. Versus trying to focus on, you know, kind of infrastructures of like, hey, you have your, you can run your own chain, right? Yeah. Although we have this, Octopus offers you a way to run your own chain and connect it to near and kind of lead security. But overall, right, is like, how do we make it like a, as transparent to the user, as fast, as, you know, as flexible to use all of this, right?
0: That's interesting. Yeah. So I, like, you're trying to solve a similar problem. You're doing it in very different ways. Like your execution environments that you just talked about, they're not parachains in that you're not, go, you're not vying for a slot in the same way. There's no payment in order to, be, to have access to that. And at the same time, it's deeply connected to the consensus of a base chain, which is different from something like Cosmos, where you, you always have your own chain running everything.
2: Yeah, the simple thing is like if, if you took all these rollups ups and just like smashed them onto Ethereum, Right. Or took all the all the parachain and smashed them into relay chain. Or took the cosmos and just smashed them all into one. Okay. Right. That, and, that, and then and then shaked it until the exper- experience got good.
0: <laughs> I like this metaphor. This is near, basically. Somebody That's somebody called it
1: Ethereum three point but yeah. In our zone we call it just near.
0: Okay. You just mentioned octopus. I've never heard of this, so can you share a little bit more about what that is that still in concept phase or is that like a thing?
2: No, it's live. There's like, I don't know, maybe a dozen uh networks already running on it. Uh yeah, so Octopus is actually is is a separate project as well. And so the way they work is they allow you to launch a existing like your code from Polkadot and potentially from Cosmos SDK as well. So uh like substrate code or, or Cosmos SDK code. And uh you can lease security. So you can mm-hmm. actually instead of instead of getting for a slot or getting on validators, you can kind of pay a little bit percentage of your tokens of your net of your chain to lease security from uh, from their network. So you can think of it as like just, you know, a network of validators who offer security to others. But is and so it's kind of
0: is the base here near?
2: yeah yeah so this, this this whole thing is smart contract on near okay and so it it, it facilitates all of these interactions as well as by connecting to this you automatically are bridged to near so all of the assets everything is bridged to near and they have like pallets in substrate to connect to Near wallet so you kind of get like both directions hmm. uh into inter- interconnectivity
0: I mean, this is a narrative switch that we're just seeing kind of play out in the last month or so. This sort of like app chain, people who had been deploying on rollups or on different systems now wanting their own chain or in, in certain cases, just feeling like instead of it, yeah, existing somewhere else, they'll just deploy their own that's very interconnected so they can still do the same things that they wanted to. Maybe that narrative actually stretch, stretches back longer than this, but do you feel like is it a response to that or is... Like, what's the vision you see long term for something like this?
2: For sure, yeah. Well, so our vision has always been a progressive set of environments, right? And so although, like, we started kind of as this, like, more monolithic structure, Mm -hmm. um, it makes sense that, you know, potentially some, some things, like, for example, the main Aurora potentially needs a beefier machines, right, to run because, you know, it doesn't scale it needs a synchronous environment. And then some things you just cannot put on kind of analytic environment. Like sometimes you know, WebAssembly will be limiting if you're trying to do like GPU computation or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, so there is a progression, right? You need to start somewhere and you need to have this core consensus, core agreement, and core set of kind of components to offer to users the singular experience. Mm-hmm. So from this perspective, like I mean, the, the vision will be like this, you know, threshold. And we actually have another project called Calimero which is offers a private shards, like a shard that you can run within your internal, like behind firewall network, you know, in your company, in your even government. And so the data does not get exposed, but you have still a lot of the cross chain cross shard communication available to you because all those hashes are checked in and there is some data availability provided and some other features. Mm. And so like this is, you know, sliding all the way to like a different world, right? Yeah. So this is kind of like, you know, a, a threshold of things. And, and, and you know, it depends on the application what you're actually achieving. And so, yeah, like, for example, Calimera can actually run Aurora's inside of private shards so you can have your, you know, whatever company running, for example, a DAX that's internal to their own needs uh, and then settle into public blockchain because it's still a private shard, right? It still can communicate with the public chain. So I would say like... Our vision always been this kind of not very monotonic, but a monotonic experience, right? You can, you know, your wallet should show you your private shard balances, right? And you should be interacting with private shard applications if you if you have permissions for mm-hmm. that. So monotonic experience. Uh, and so to achieve that, you need a lot more integration uh, in a way that, at least from my perspective, many other folks are kind of trying to do both in the roll-up world and in the Cosmos world. Mm. And, you know, Cosmos is kind of also, you know, working toward that with all the integrations and other stuff, but kind of starting from singular experience and then building in different directions is is just faster and easier.
0: I want to go back to the Aurora shard, because you just mentioned, like, the to work on the Aurora shard, you'd need beefy machines. But, like, the role of the validator in Near and the role of the validator with the shards, and the role of the validator in response to Aurora. I think this is what I want to I wanna understand, this distinction.
2: So right now, every, all the validators are the same, right? Yeah. And so all the shard like, kind of there's rotation. But, you know, given Aurora is already running on a separate shard, and so, like, there's a way to create a, a marketplace for, you know, different capabilities of validators as well going forward
0: okay like would you have a validator choose to only run the aurora shard is that actually like something that would be on the roadmap or would they always run all of them somehow so well
2: you cannot run all of them uh well you you can say like you will rotate right but then depending on your capability potentially you'll not get selected into some shards right and so the computational requirements can be different as well and so Pretty much we can have marketplaces of, you know, computation and demand kind of facilitated by consensus. Um, and so right now, right now, this, there's no marketplace. It's very like, you know, one to one mapping and like everybody's kind of the same. But you know, over time we can like and we thinking of how to evolve that. Mm, cool.
0: There's one project that we haven't mentioned yet, which is like very antithetical to the sharding narrative which is Solana and I just wonder like when you look at that model is there anything you're taking from them or do you feel like that's just sort of the wrong approach to just like make the chain is like basically making the chain is tr- so strong that it can like handle all of this flow you know they they basically have come out being very clearly anti shard
2: yeah so i mean this is what i meant by you know there's like two sides of their approach one is that hey we're going to run really beefy machines and they're going to optimize a hell out of the all all of the things to make you know use every bit of 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 a computation on them, which you know is a reasonable approach. You know, if you really start optimizing, you kind of throw away some of the stuff that you know we consider part of the blockchain, uh, like state authentication. But that approach makes sense, right? And that's what I meant. Like, as we move further, we can actually have a more. Kind of sophisticated matching between applications and hardware
0: mm.
2: right now this mapping is you know again like very manually hardware like manual governance of like you know technical experts like which which shards which apps and then shards all the same but you know over time we can we can make that more powerful and more sophisticated. Like, hey, who has you know machines that are matching these requirements? If you if you're not able, you're getting downgraded, like, and stuff like this, right?
0: By this logic, just here's a quick question: Is the Aurora shard like the Solana of Near in a way? Because if it needs beefy, like, <laughs> well, it can it can become one. Okay. Yes,
2: <laughs> I think the the approach of Solana of like optimizing the kind of you know just throw away the surveys of VM and they replaced it, and this is where it gets like there's some philosophical disagreement around like we believe in simplicity and they believe in op- like in optimizing everything mm. which in result means their stuff is very complex the developers you know their motto is eating glass right yeah. for their developers and so well, we, that is very antithetical to kind of our approach but at the same time you know if if we can 100x the performance of aurora by creating a more sophisticated marketplace for hardware and yeah. then offer that to other applications as well that are willing you know and need to pay for that and, and we have validators that went on board into that kind of uh, capabilities. You know, that's a way to go forward as well. But, you know, it is still under the same kind of common consensus model, which then still, you know, offers you a normal capabilities, you know, general hardware, and you can replicate the data mm. and everything.
0: You just mentioned this term, eating glass. Is that actually from Anatoly? Is that like a Solana statement? So this is, as far as I understood, it was the idea that, like, the, it's so hard to use but if you go through it, you'll stick around or something like that. Is that roughly what what it means? Well, no.
2: Eating glass is like this this idea that I mean, we should hear it from their mouths. But yeah. Like the way I understand it, it's like it's it's so hard to to do. But but what you get in result is like this highly optimized, you know, okay, high performance system, right? And so they compare it to building, you know, high frequency trading systems. Like it's not simple, right? It's mm. it's it's not going to be but you know when you do it you get you know you make all the money versus we believe you know in in opening up you know millions of developers to to build on on this infrastructure and so to do that we want to lower the barrier as low as possible
0: mm. okay so i want to go back to aurora tell tell me what like aurora plus is actually because that's a product that came out pretty recently it's very slick it's very nice to use it's not the same as Aurora. That's like, I guess it lives on Aurora. Just tell me what that relationship is.
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, indeed, Aurora Plus is an additional product. The goal of Aurora Plus is to simplify the user experience when working with blockchains. Um, at the moment, if you would think about the user experience, that he needs to install exchange, install um, maybe some additional, uh, pass KYC, maybe install some additional um, applications like wallets, move the assets across the blockchains, pay the gas fees in different blockchains, in different tokens, and take care of the stuck transactions, replaying it, making sure that it has enough gas gas attached, and so on. It is super, super complicated, and it is not going to work with Zoomers that are playing uh, their casual games on, on the mobile phones, right? And, and unfortunately, technically deep people who are capable of thinking of uh, all of these complexities, they are not constituent a billion of people in the world, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. However, Zoomers are actually, you know, probably several billions by this moment in time. So uh, so we need to optimize for these people. And there is no bad things in this. It's not like a betrayal of the concepts of, of the blockchain. It's just the evolution that needs to come in place. We need to make sure that the user experience is better. Uh, and it is not that bad uh, as it was you know, five years ago, right? So Aurora Plus, uh, this is the product for implementing the better user experience. At the moment, we are um, allowing for one simple uh, idea, which is the personalized user experience when working with the blockchain. And when I'm saying personalized, I mean, for example, personalized gas prices for people. We offer to all of the users of Aurora Plus 50 free transactions per month. And while uh, I can have, I still can have this quota, if somebody else reached uh, or already maxed out his quota, he starts to pay uh, on a per-transaction basis. This is achieved through a um, very specific configuration of the wallet. So our RPC is capable of understanding who is the user that is... Uh, communicating with the blockchain at the moment. Later on, we are going to migrate into the subscriptions for the blockchain. So at the moment, we are a little bit like in in the end of 90s uh, when we are paying per second on our mobile calls. And it is not very good uh, because we constantly need to think of this. But we are going to Pro, do a quantum leap from 90s to to, to 20s, uh, and actually have subscription plans for our mobile data that you get 10 gigabytes of internet, and that's it. You stop thinking of it, and actually you are able to click a button or uh, automatic renewal, right? So this is something that we would like to implement.
0: But this would be on transaction fees. This is on gas.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, this is this is for for transaction fees. But like in general. You can think of this in general, the access to the blockchain, right? These are the transactions. These are read requests for the RPC, maybe some additional features that that you're going to unlock there. Uh, But besides that, we also would like to give an ability for third parties to pay on behalf of the users. This is a very, very simple feature once the previous steps are done, but it is extremely powerful. Here's an example for you. I'm a user of a YouTube. I know the business model of the YouTube. I either need to pay subscription fee or I need to watch ads. Do I need to pay to their content delivery network, CDN, every time when I'm watching the, the video, right? And this is their kind of base thing. This is their protocol. I am not interacting it. The business model of the YouTube is not showing this to me. Mm-hmm. because YouTube is paying on behalf of myself to the CDN. Why people that are using applications on the blockchain need to pay to the blockchain?
0: Yeah, it's wild. By the way, your your example speaks to me because years before this, I had a video startup and we were talking about pricing and this is exactly the issue. How do you price per view when we, our costs were to a CDN? It's making me remember that.
1: Right, right. So, So our idea is that, well, We just need to give an ability for dApps to pay for the users and for their usage of the blockchain. And that will be okay. Then the business models will become simpler, slick, and, you know, sticky with the users. Um, That's it. That's it. And uh, last but not least, there is only one ingredient left uh, in this cocktail. And this is the incorporation of Web2 user authentication methods on the blockchain. In case a third party is paying for your transactions, then the only thing that you need to do as a user is just to authenticate actions and make sure that, you know, the actions are authenticated in a good way. And there are lots of actions that we are authenticating at the moment. We even stop thinking about it. We are doing it in a very simple and straightforward way. We're just looking at our phone and then here the action is um, (laughs) authenticated. That's it. Uh, our goal for Aurora Plus is to integrate TouchAD, FaceAD, and other uh, Web2 uh, means of uh, interaction with Web2 applications into the Web3. Hmm.
0: Just to recap the way I've understood it, though, Aurora Plus, is it written in Solidity? Is it like the example, like application that can live on Aurora environment? Probably the better explain it is, is,
2: is a type of a wallet but it works with other wallets, right? So it's more of a like wallet service that other wallets can use. And so instead of sending a transaction to, to nodes directly, you send it to Aurora Plus, and then Aurora Plus sends it on your behalf, and then either pays for it or gets somebody else pay for it. And so that's why you know what was useful for Aurora—they built the whole relay network to power that for Aurora already. And so in result. They were, it was easy for them, kind of, to extend into allowing this custom kind of uh, interaction between the user and the network. But this, like, that's what I was saying. This will extend to near apps as well because we we're working on the on the standards for meta transactions, allowing these relayers as well to work. And then the question will be like, yeah, how do you prove to the network, right, that the user is originated this transaction? And so, you know, that can be a signature, but it can be also your face ID or whatever um, that be right and, you know, potentially still gets remapped to some form of signature.
0: So when I look at this, when I look at the, the dashboard, I mean, you can see that you can interface with a lot of different apps and that does speak to it being like a wallet service. But is it itself also kind of a place for people to earn or trade? Like, does it have a bit of like DEX properties or liquidity pools or anything like that built into it? Or is it purely this, this sort of place where other things are connected to it?
1: There is indeed a staking uh, mechanism uh, inside of Aurora Plus. And the main reason for it is actually to implement the governance of the Aurora Protocol. You can think of this like uh, you're staking in a proof of stake uh, type of network, Right. Uh, The only difference is that this staking is implemented as a smart contract on Aurora instead of on the protocol level like on Nier. So staking there, the main reason for it is actually to implement the governance. And Aurora token uh, is the governance token. The main main idea behind it is actually making sure that the protocol is governed uh, as decentrally as possible.
0: But every other interaction, like any sort of like lending or trading, that's going to be using a third-party application.
1: Oh, yeah. There is no plans to incorporate this functionality inside of Aurora Plus, uh, only through the extensions uh, of the use cases uh, on top of Aurora. Cool.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the bridges. We sort of started this conversation talking about your work, Alex, on the Rainbow Bridge. At this moment, I've used it, and you actually do go between like near and aurora and ethereum potentially maybe there's more now since i last used it but like what is the rainbow bridge today and is there a, is there a separate aurora bridge that you have planned like directly like aurora to all of the other evm compatible chains or something like that
1: so rainbow bridge uh, is the bridge in between near and ethereum yeah. that's the most important thing that that it does it is quite complicated because it has this uh, light client architecture, but also as a small part of it, uh, it has an ability to move assets in between near runtime and Aurora runtime. We naturally explain this to our users that it is the extension of the bridge. However, it has nothing in common with the bridge itself. More, it is about the some specific methods of the Aurora smart contract. But there are also some additional methods that that allow the interaction in between the Rainbow Bridge and the Aurora smart contract. So, for example, users that are not having near wallets are capable of transferring their assets directly from Ethereum to Aurora.
0: Hmm. What about from Aurora to other EVM compatible, though? How would they do that?
1: At the moment, Rainbow Bridge is not... uh, is not capable of moving the assets from Aurora to, to other networks except for Near and, and Ethereum. Uh, there is a very strong reason for this. Uh, this reason is user experience. Uh, again, we are, we are prioritizing this. Like We do not want to complicate user experience for people because nowadays there are lots of Bridges that are launched, and then you're bridging your uh, BTC to one network to from one network to another network, and then you see that on this target network there are five different BTCs. Mm-hmm. Whether you are owning the right one in order to stake here or provide liquidity here, you don't know. Super complicated, right? And yes. The reason why it happens, why this confusion is there, is that because money in our you know usual world does not have the traces of the history where this money have been printed and through which countries they were going into your wallet. Yeah. While in our interconnected world, the blockchain world, it it makes a difference. So something needs to be developed. There are are several ideas how this can be faced. So we are not rushing out uh, additional networks, you know, not to confuse our users.
0: Okay. But what if somebody like what if one of the bridge protocols or interoperability protocols like if it's EVM couldn't they just deploy on your on Aurora, like they could bridge to somewhere
1: else? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are multiple bridge protocols that are already yeah, working.
2: Like, I think at least six six protocols are alive. Right. Yeah.
1: So multi chain, all bridge, d bridge, uh, wormhole,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, all of them are already deployed on Aurora and working.
0: Okay. Doesn't that kind of cause the same problem though? This fragmentation of like single it token causes, liquidity. <laughs> it
1: causes. Yes, but like okay. this is the, this is the permissionless uh, and decentralized world, right? Yeah. Uh, our idea of taking care of the users maybe not in the heads of other people, right? So.
0: There. Do you actually imagine also like an implementation of IBC or something like that anywhere in the stack? to be able to interact with like other IBC enabled chains
1: There were discussions happening like half a year ago and as far as I understand some team that is outside of Aurora Aurora team should start doing this mm-hmm. uh, but unfortunately I I do not know what is the result
0: Where would it live where would an IBC like would it be in near in the bridge or in Aurora because it's not it's not EVM specific IBC, but I guess there are I, there are EVM implementations. So we actually
2: have drafted out the design of connecting Rainbow and IBC Ooh. together. And so uh, although they're a little bit different designs, but their spirit is actually very similar of having light like client verification and uh, kind of communication on top of it. And so there, there was ideas, and and uh, I think you know there was few teams that were exploring uh, kind of to build that. And uh, I think like with sounds the light like client uh, zero knowledge proofs uh, maturing, that probably will make it easier because we can just leverage the proof instead of rebuilding the whole light like, client verification every time. And so we can just use a you know verif- proof verifier on the other side and then build on top.
0: Very cool. So what's maybe the future of Aurora Plus? Like, where does it go from here?
1: So Aurora Plus has a very straightforward goal, which is fully aligned with with the goal of Nier, onboarding an insane amount of people to the blockchain. And this is its future. I hope that Aurora Plus will become a default way for people to interact with Aurora as well as Nier Okay. Um, and uh, who knows, maybe some of the ideas of Aurora Plus are going to be adapted by the other blockchains. Uh, and uh, then it will become a standard way of interacting with the blockchains as a whole.
0: Let's chat a little bit about ZK stuff. You'd sort of mentioned ZK in a like client context, but what is happening in ZK research, ZK projects? Like, is Aurora actually looking into using ZK anywhere in its stack?
1: Yeah, well, obviously, uh, all of the zk science and all of the research that is happening in the zk space is super interesting. Just because, well, we are tech people and we love all of this nerdy stuff, right? Uh, but besides that, besides that, it actually can bring some good properties, uh, especially to Rainbow Bridge. So at the moment, uh, because of the limitations of the Ethereum mainnet. Near cryptography is not able to be validated there at the moment uh, when we are committing a new near blocks to the light client. Um, it's just going to take too much gas for the computations. Um, and uh, in order to overcome this issue, the uh, bridging from near to Ethereum right now is implemented as uh, optimistic. So we are checking everything except for the uh, signatures of the validators, and then we are given four hours uh, to our watchdogs to mm-hmm. c- to commit the challenge in case something is is fabricated. Actually, we automatically resisted uh, one of the attack that was uh, finely tuned to check probably to check whether we have any watchdogs running. In this wow. case, so so a bad guy was uh, was was constructing the wrong block with wrong signatures. And he was committing this um, to the Rainbow Bridge. And our systems automatically responded to this attack. Now, the approach is OK. Uh, but obviously, it can be, uh, it can be better. Because uh, the biggest drawback from this approach is that the user needs to wait at least four hours uh, for, for this challenge period. And in case we are capable of packaging all of the signatures into something simple, something like a recursive uh, ZK scheme that is packing uh, all of the ver- verification of all of the signatures into something um, that is constant in time uh, on Ethereum blockchain in terms of uh, checking it, then it is going to be great. And it means that the transactions from near to Ethereum can become almost instant Dependent only on the time uh, of the generation um, of the of the scheme, mm. so uh, we are working right now with uh, with a company named uh, Electron Labs on packing these signatures and uh, once the code is reviewed because that's that 's an additional problem uh, when you have a bridge uh, with uh, hundreds of millions in, in locked in the smart contracts, obviously you do not want to <laughs> Uh, you know, what, we would like to make sure that everything is going to be good. So it is real ZK research that we are planning to put in production. And for this, it is not that simple to find uh, very qualified security companies that will be able to do security audit there because this is on the edge yeah, yeah. Um, of the science.
0: What other ZK projects would you say are happening around near? I would say...
2: One side is continuously going down the architecture of Nier, right? And actually compressing more and more stuff, right? And so I think like a lot of people have focused like how do we build, you know, zero knowledge VM. And that's the hardest part and it'll take the longest time to build to do research, to figure out how to do it, to make sure it's bulletproof, you know, nobody can exercise it. And so we kind of been more pragmatically starting. Well, how do we do like client, right? It's so kind of the t- top of the, of the part. And then we can actually go down and start compressing, for example, signatures on transactions in a block are actually taking sometimes more than half of the block size, right? So if you can compress it, you can actually increase your throughput of, of the data to X. Right. You can start compressing a lot of other pieces, right? Verification of signatures on the chunks and stuff like this. So like there's a lot of pieces that you can do kind of even before you get to the VM mm. to improve your whole infrastructure. Right. And that and that in turn actually tra- transfers into like better connectivity with other chains and, and other things. And like faster syncs as well, because you don't need to re-verify, you need know, less storage needed to store all this information on disk for nodes. On the flip side of this is we already have put one chain on Mir, right, as a smart contract. We can put more chains. The the other chain to put is Zcash, right? So putting the sapling type of privacy pool as a smart contract in MIR is also possible. And now embedding that directly into wallets, allowing all of your balances to be shielded uh kind of as you are interacting with other smart contracts and they you know that get unshielded when you're go- going and this is where like aurora plus and Meta transactions and other pieces actually come in as well because you need to be able to pay or not pay for transaction fees when you're sending privacy tra- private transactions so so there's kind of a lot of pieces like across the whole stack that need to come in to deliver really truly you know private on one side private experience on the other one exp- like hiding balances without, you know, you needing a separate wallet with different cryptography with different pieces. And so there's like few, few parties that are working on that kind of privacy pool uh, approach.
0: Does this exist almost like, I'm trying to figure out where on the stack it is. Does it live on Aurora? Does it live on Near? And also, would it need to be on a single shard that's separate? Like, would it need some sort of special shard in order to retain its privacy?
2: So it can live on Aurora, right? It depends on the implementation part. Okay. Um, and then it can also live outside of Aurora, like as a, you know, if it's implemented directly on native near. I think right now the way one implementation is doing it is inside Aurora, uh, just because they've have written EVM code for that. But at the same time, if you do want to live on on many shards and be able to scale, then they probably will need to uh, over time move to native near.
0: Long ago, in one of our early episodes, we talked about like the gas fee model. This idea that like part of the gas fees actually went to maintainers of smart contracts. And I, actually, Alex, I think I asked you this last year too about like does that flow up to Aurora or does it stay only at the near level? And this was the idea that like part of the gas fee would go or. Transaction, I, f- I forget if it was like the general emission or if it was gas fee, but there basically be a pool there for like anyone who deployed an application on NIR would actually and maintained it, that it, if it had users, they'd basically be able to get a piece of these rewards. I guess the first question is like, is that still happening? The second question is, does that actually flow up? So maybe first, is that still the model?
1: So this thing is happening on the level of Near. Um, okay. That's why the Aurora DAO at the moment is is getting thirty percent of the gas cost of all of the transactions that are flowing through Aurora, or like this near is accessible to the Aurora DAO. I see. Uh, unfortunately, at the moment, it is not propagating further down uh, inside of Aurora. Okay. Uh, but from my point of view, this is a great thing to do. Uh, and uh, at some point in time, when we're going to have a little bit more time to, to work on this, and in case DAO will, would have a desire to implement this uh, this feature, uh, then we would be gladly implementing this also on the Aurora level.
0: And going back to your conversation about like governance in Aurora Plus or Aurora Period, like that's what those tokens could eventually be used for, I guess, for like voting what to do with the Aurora DAO, or is it separate?
1: Yeah, it is separate. So oh, okay. the the voting voting is happening uh, according to the Aurora token. Uh, it's a separate token, separate ERC20 on Aurora. But this additional kind of cashback payments to the creators of the smart contract, I do believe some people would be capable of creating sustainable business models out of these mechanics Things that, that we see at the moment with the open-source software. Uh, there are companies that are building open-source software and they're living just because of the donations of the people and companies who are actually using this software. So implementing this uh, you know, 30% gas fee that is allocated to the creators of the software or the deploy- deployers of the smart contract... Uh, this is literally implementing this business model for the open source software live on the blockchain. From my point of view, this is one of the greatest ideas out there implemented in the Near Protocol. Unfortunately, it is not, you know, picking up uh, uh, that fast, though somebody is going to discover it and make a big splash with it.
0: Mm, cool. One thing I did want to talk about before we sign off is basically the connection between NIR and Ukraine. Both of you are from Ukraine. I know a lot of your team is based there. Can you tell me a little bit about what the last six months have been like and also maybe how the project interfaces or like interacts with the conflict over there, if there's been any sort of connection points or yeah, anything on that front?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, Ale- Alex has his own story, but uh, from my side... Kind of when the war started, we've tried to get and to help everyone to get to safety uh, who was in the harm's way. And that was a pretty complicated operation. Um, at the same time, we tried to figure out how to help. And I think like all of the crypto community in Ukraine kind of band together to uh, figure out how to help with everything from, you know, doing supplies, to providing information, to you know helping uh, government and various things and uh the thing we realized very quickly is that most of the NGOs don't have a crypto donation addresses, and a lot of people from outside of Ukraine in crypto were like, "Hey, where do we donate?" and so we started an unchained fund and it took like you know twenty minutes to start pretty much a non nonprofit and then you know one million dollars in the first twenty four hours and so that allows us to kind of quickly start collecting donations and then distributing them so we had like five thousand people network of volunteers on the ground who were, you know, sometimes having like $100 to buy some supplies and distribute it to to people around them. Uh, And some was like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of uh, medication, of like insulin, antibiotics, sending to different places. Uh, I mean, that was impactful and and kind of almost gave time for like NGOs and, you know, governments and to pick it up, pick up steam and then government actually institute a crypto donation system as well which we've participated and there's actually a account on near called Ukraine that you can donate to. And so, yeah, I think like overall, I think crypto played a very powerful role, especially in the first weeks before kind of, I would say the regular systems caught up and it was very unclear if the regular banking system would work, if it will be bombed Mm -hmm. out uh, honestly in the first days. And so crypto was like something that actually will be operational even. Uh, during this uh, kind of uh, terrible times,
0: did it become for a period like the currency? Could people actually like? Would people be accepting that as payment for things? Like, w- was there actual like on the ground folks using it in a in a way that we hadn't seen before?
2: Some, I would say, like cash was still was still very popular, but okay. I, I think crypto became very very desired as well. USDT was trading like fifteen percent. Like higher in Kiev. So, like, you would need $1.15 in cash to buy a dollar of USDT.
0: Did you also see places where it's like, if only we were like a few years ahead, it would have been better? Could you almost see then like real need that maybe you hadn't noticed before or you hadn't like quite realized tools that were missing?
2: For sure. Yeah. I think the reputation and kind of more like social, like on chain social reputation. Being able to just like distinguish, you know, and identify and kind of propagate information across like kind of sounds of DAO tooling was, you know, and, and a lot of just like accounting tooling that wasn't there. Like, you know, even though we had everything on chain, we did not be able to like produce reports we needed and stuff like this. And so I think like disaster relief and, and kind of this kind of large coordination problem is what blockchain is built for. We have all the pieces, we just don't have kind of a, it's all together. The problem is there's no motivation to build that. Like there's no disaster. When there's disasters, there's no time to build it. And so yeah. you kind of need to build it when there's no, like when everything is fine with the design that it will be used when things will be really bad. And so uh, this is kind of, I mean, like one of the projects I'm really excited to work with some folks is is kind of productionizing what we've ended up kind of cobbling together in chain for next time, hopefully we can, you know, roll it out and, you know, in hours instead of days or weeks, right? And being able to, like, hit ground running right away and then give it to, like, NGOs and and uh, even governments who do disaster relief themselves to be a lot more efficient. Like, I mean, honestly, like, sadly, there's still a bunch of scam and, like, people are stealing stuff, et cetera. And so this is where, like, we need reputation. We need a lot more traceability. We need, like, authentication. There's folks who are doing IoT devices who are putting stuff on chain as well. But, like, it, we can actually package all that in the very... Kind of coherent solution.
0: What about you, Alex?
1: For me, all of the situation is um, is extremely painful. My wife and the child were in Kharkiv at the moment when uh, when the attack happened, and uh, they needed to evacuate from there. And uh, it is just uh, extremely stressful. Um, uh, literally, we started our life uh, with with a blank page. Just because of this, wow. and I'm and I'm a big, uh, a big patriot of of my country. I I wanted to live in Ukraine, though I have been in many different countries uh, all over the the world. Especially and especially my city, it was uh, a, a tremendous city, a great city. Uh, almost everybody who who were coming there for the first time, they were saying that this is one of the best cities in the world. So, unfortunately, it is no longer the case and uh, everything changed. Everything changed. Um, and obviously, it influenced the uh, operations of our labs uh, a lot too. So within the first uh, first month, uh, we have been focusing almost solely uh, on the matters that are connected with the war, making sure that, uh, that our employees, their families are in the safe place and yeah it was multiplied by by the fog of war the absence of the information and in general super super scary situation but we've gone through it uh, people are in in the safest places that they're capable of getting to uh, or they are willing to get to because some of the we have some people that are working at Aurora uh, women who are capable of leaving Ukraine, but they are not willing to do it, so they they are staying in the Ukraine. So at the moment, I can say that uh, on the business side, uh, all of the operations uh, have normalized, and uh, we're just progressing forward. And uh, my attitude towards it uh, is following. My country is suffering. I know that the most efficient thing that I can do for my country is do business uh, produce value, pay taxes, donate on top of these taxes, and then qualified people who are knowing what to do with this money uh, they will actually do their job so that's uh, that's my attitude and that's what I'm continues to doing
0: Thanks for sharing that. I mean I'm so happy that you are both safe and that your team is in a good place like what's kind of next for the project and also maybe your Ilya, you just mentioned this kind of, you know, work that you actually want to do. Do you feel like is NEAR more focused on this now going forward? Has that changed a little bit like the trajectory of the project? Well, I I think
2: it was definitely, you know, some priorities where to invest time and efforts. For me, right, you know, looking out more for projects which are, one, benefiting Ukraine, right? So, for example, we're also partnering with some folks who are going to do digitalization of all of the works of art in Ukraine because some of them are getting destroyed by bombs, by, you know, tanks, etc. And so trying to bring them on chain, making them kind of, you know, living forever instead Mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, in the physical world as we see. And so, you know, we're partnering with that, we're partnering with, uh, there's a team that's working on recording all the war crimes in Ukraine as well and using blockchain again and and using kind of that as proof points of uh, the blockchain is a tool to, to be used in court as well as a backup. And then, as I mentioned, like this kind of disaster relief platform. So Un- Unchain is continuing operating It actually working on uh, UBI style program where women with children under six who either had a husband or has uh, been conscribed or uh, sadly dead, they actually receive 25 euro per week directly on a card, so they can actually spend it. And so you have a kind of full transparency of the flow of money. And uh, a lot of governments have some types of programs like this, but this allows to actually, you know, prototype this in in a very kind of blockchain native environment and have analytics and everything to to showcase the value of this and, you know, for people who wanna check it out, go to Instagram, Unchain score fund. There's a lot of stories of these women. Uh, who who are part of this program, and so kind of there's a lot of efforts and like you know trying to promote and and, and help the efforts that are, are bring bring things to to Ukraine, at the same time thinking more about like what is the absolute social reputation systems like this kind of look like going mm-hmm. forward because I do think it's not I mean part of it is this kind of thing but also I think it is the future anyway and you know this is the reason why we started kind of in many ways, how, you know, some of these like centralized players kind of monopolize data and close off the APIs, to allow anyone to build on it. And so this kind of gives us even more motivation to kind of keep pushing for this. Right. And I think like a few of our community and projects are going to be presenting at e c c and some of this stuff as well. So
0: cool.
2: kind of overall, like there's a lot of efforts already happening. And so kind of now it's more, you know, how do we help them? How do we invest in them? and promote them more uh, as immature.
1: I would like to second uh, uh, Ilya's last thought here that this conflict is a clear representation of a very centralized decision that was made. And because of this, lots of people are suffering. And from my point of view, it proves that we are doing something great for the humanity working on the decentralized technologies working on uh, something that brings more transparency, more trust uh, in the equation. So uh, this is exactly one of the reasons uh, or like the main reason uh, why we are doing this. And f- and from my point of view, it just unfortunately an extremely sad example for the world and for me personally. Uh, but this thing just gives me assurance that the things that we are working on Uh, They are not in vain. Uh, They are for the good.
0: Got it. I want to say a big thank you to both of you for coming on, for sharing, obviously, updates on the project, but also updates on the team and what you guys have gone through. So, yeah, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, thank you.
0: I want to say thank you to the ZK Podcast team, Henrik, Tanya, and Chris, for putting together this episode with me. And to our listeners, thanks for listening.